The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. As we start realizing that we might have a dispute, sometimes it's really taking that huge step back and saying, what's important to this person? Because if I made an assumption about that and thought they only cared about one thing, I might be completely missing the mark of a really easy resolution. So in all my interactions, I'm incredibly mindful of asking those open questions and truly listening to people so that we get to a mutually satisfactory resolution as quickly as possible. Hi to our listeners from New York City. It is your host, Lauren, again. And today I am thrilled to share with you my guest and colleague, Catherine Larson, Deputy General Counsel at Thomson Reuters. I have had the privilege of being colleagues with Catherine not once, but twice in our legal careers. And I say privilege because she is one of the smartest and most articulate lawyers I know. And to say she's passionate about media law and her work Um, is an understatement. What I think is incredibly fascinating about Catherine is her global background. She was raised in a small town in the Midwestern US, but from a relatively young age, she had an interest in moving abroad. She went on to live and work in the former Yugoslavia, Croatia, Hong Kong, Azerbaijan, to name a few, um, both before and during her legal career. Catherine now works in New York, but she also worked in Philadelphia and in Miami, which happens to be uh, where we first met as federal law clerks. Catherine has also spent significant time working in Myanmar, as we talked about during our conversation. I give you all of this geographical background to really highlight that Catherine is not your typical American lawyer. And that's because she has lived and worked all around the world and really does bring a unique global perspective to both her professional and personal life, as you'll hear. We chatted about a bunch of topics, including how her um, global experience taught her the importance of approaching things without making assumptions. And that's something that can be you know, hard for us lawyers. We also talked about how critical it is to develop the skill of asking open-ended questions. Again, something else that can be difficult as a lawyer. But that's something that Catherine learned in part from her many years working alongside some of the world's most renowned journalists. So please enjoy today's episode. The Hearing. Well, welcome, Catherine. I'm so excited to have you with us today. So you have been at Thomson Reuters um, as an in-house attorney in various roles for about eight years now. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Congratulations. That's that's a good chunk of time that in this is. day and age. Um, so, and recently you took on a pretty significant new role at Thomson Reuters. And so for the benefit of our listeners, what is your current role and what do you do? So my current role is Deputy General Counsel Litigation. So I'm overseeing our litigation strategy for the whole of Thomson Reuters. That's a big jump from my prior role, which was as Chief Counsel for Reuters News. So instead of being looking at just at the Reuters news business and supporting it from a legal perspective, I've now expanded to the whole of the company. That's really exciting and, and congratulations. It's a Thank very, you. a very big role. Um, and you know, I know firsthand that our company's legal department is in great hands with you, um, you. given how 
passionate you are about your work and, and how hardworking you are. Um, and I know this because I am fortunate enough to have worked with you in not one, but two different places in, in our careers. Um, and I thought I might illustrate for our listeners um, who may not know you um, a, a story. And, and it is the very first story I ever heard about you. And that was about um, probably 16 or, or 17 years ago now. You're aging um, us You forward. were finishing up. I know, you know, and on, on the last episode, I, I swore I wasn't going to do that to, to our guest, um, but I apologize. Okay. I just did it to both of us. So so you were finishing up a federal clerkship for our judge in Miami, which is how I met you. Um, I was about to take over from you as the um, incoming clerk as you were as you were finishing up. Um, and our fellow co-clerk at the time had told me that you were the best person in the courthouse to show me the ropes. And I, I said, why? Why is that? And he said, oh, Catherine was just telling me the other day she was here working so late that the courthouse lights went off um, and she was by herself and, and, and had to call someone to get the lights turned back on. I don't even remember. That. And it's funny that Isaac would have given that. I would have thought that the first thing he would have told you is about how diligent I was in giving him advice uh, about hurricanes. Because when I moved to Miami, I hadn't experienced one before and then immediately went through a period. Um, Miami's um, almost perhaps most intense hurricane period. So multiple times we were forced to move. And it was, as a lawyer, interestingly, a very uh, traumatic experience. So I was always coming back to uh, Isaac and giving, you know, as, as also a new transplant to Miami, trying to give him advice about what to do. And, and the reason for that is because it had never crossed my mind that a hurricane in in, in this case, ripping off the windows of buildings and buildings, as you know, just, you know, the courthouses in in downtown Miami, but just nearby is this neighborhood called Brickle with skyscra beautiful skyscrapers, beautiful law firm yeah. buildings, glass, glass windows. And during one of the hurricanes, Wilma, so that was my neighborhood, I you know, initially was just worried about the flooding. But when I came out to look around and see what had happened, the very first thing I saw was... Um, privileged and confidential stamped documents from all of the law firms. So when people left their offices, clearly like there had been documents on, you know, desks and things like that. And they had been spread all over the neighborhood. And so I remember in in talking to him about the transition to Miami, um, preparing him for all the craziness that could happen with hurricanes. And then I believe in his time there he had not not one. I want it all. So I thought perhaps he thought I was just a crazy person <laughs> in trying no. to in trying to prep him for that. No, I think I think um, it uh, it's very telling uh, your passion as a lawyer that during you know a hurricane and and with everything that happens with a hurricane, you were focused on the attorney client privilege document. Yeah, shocking. I imagine. I imagine. So, so Catherine, one of the reasons I was so excited to have you on today is because, at least in my mind, you are not, you know, a run-of-the-mill American lawyer. And, and I say that because of all the places you have lived and worked, not only in your career, but, but in your life, you have a truly um, global background. And I'm not sure I ever really spoke to you in depth about it, so I would, I would love to talk to you now about it. Can you tell us about some of the other countries you've worked in and, and how you became interested in, in living abroad? 
Yeah, so I think uh, just to start, I grew up in a small town in Iowa, Mason City, Iowa. So if you've ever seen The Music Man, and Mason City is River City of The Music Man. And, um, I, you know, I, I appreciate the fact that uh, having left the, you know, having left the United States, having left the Midwest, I look back and realize in, in some ways I am a very American, a very Midwestern lawyer. There are, you know, you can take the girl out of the Midwest, but you can't take the Midwest out of the, out of the girl. But I had a unique opportunity um, in my life in that my mom uh, grew up in a family that just, you know, because of some inspiration and a little bit of impulsivity, hosted a foreign exchange student um, from Brazil. Um, from Juiz de Fora, Brazil, in in the early 1960s, and this this teenager who lived in Algona, Iowa, for a year, changed the whole trajectory of my mom's life, and changed the trajectory of my life because my you know my mom's first travel overseas was was to go visit her her brother, who she calls him Salvador, has has always been her brother since that that year, and my first international trip um, when I was ten was to go see my uncle Salvador. And that whole family, and that opened up my mind for for certain about having family, different cultures. You know, part of it was when I was a little kid. I loved the breakfast that I got to eat in, <laughs> in Brazil. I loved going to the beach. I loved the ice cream. There were so many things that were exciting and different that has inspired me. That made me realize that I could be a foreign exchange student. So I went into high school already thinking about how would I do this. I spent my senior year of high school as a Rotary exchange student in Germany. So with the Rotary program, you share, you go to different families in a community. That was fantastic. You know, families with kids, families without kids, families with different backgrounds. I learned so much. And from there, I continued on. Um, I I did go back to Iowa for University of Iowa for undergrad, and that left me itching to to leave again. So um, that was, again, we're aging ourselves. That was in the late (laughs) 1990s um, when uh, the, the conflict in Bosnia-Herzegovina was really at its peak. Um, and so watching that uh, you know, and, and seeing Christiana Amanpour from the streets of Sarajevo, I was incredibly motivated to figure out something that I could do there. So um, I, I was initially working do, as an intern for the State Department in Germany and then was able to work and do humanitarian aid work uh, starting in 97, 98 in Sarajevo. And then I continued on and lived in the former Yugoslavia through uh, 2000. And that's what motivated me then to be more serious about pursuing advocacy work. Uh, Human rights work in particular is what I thought. Um, And to come to law school. So I'm back to D.C., so another international hub Mm -hmm. uh, to to study law because of really all the all the doors that having a J.D., all the doors that the JD would open that I found without that degree, I wasn't, I wasn't doing the kind of work that I wanted to do in the former Yugoslavia. And so it was really necessary to come back and finish my education. So where else besides the, the former Yugoslavia have you lived? Um, oh, during so, so when I met my husband, he was, um, uh, really excited about the work that I had done. And he was an immigrant to the United States. He moved to the U.S. from India when he was 17 and had always wanted to do that kind of humanitarian aid work. Um, and so he and I, after we paid off all, all of our loans, um, went to Azerbaijan, where he was working 
um, for a, in emergency medicine. Um, so he was working on a project to help develop the practice of emergency medicine there. And I worked for the American Bar Association's Rule of Law Project. So Azerbaijan was our, our next step. And from there, there were another, um, a number of other side projects in other countries. We had the benefit of doing, you know, partnering um, with projects in Georgia and him in other countries as well. And that was really exciting. Um, but eventually brought us back stateside. Um, so from there, I went to work for a small boutique firm in Philadelphia. And then that's what that was the pathway that got me uh, to Thomson Reuters. And did you also you also worked in in Hong Kong? Is that right? So that was part. So I as a you know, as, as a baby lawyer, mm-hmm. I um, worked for Clifford Chance, um, which was in a, a you know, a fantastic law firm an opportunity to do both First Amendment work. They had um, a practice in New York, but also international commercial arbitration. And so I did, I split my time between Hong Kong and uh, New York. So another fantastic opportunity. You have really, you have traveled the world and worked in the world. It's, it's one of, you know, the many reasons I admire you. I think it's amazing. I, I love it. I, I really enjoy going, you know, traveling places and learning things, you know, especially going somewhere and realizing that there are words that don't exist in English, that concepts that don't exist or ways you can talk about things that are different. And I, I love how that forces me to question the assumptions that we make about how we do things, um, how we interact with people. Um, and I think it's really helpful um, in my work, and especially at Thomson Reuters, which is such a global company, we have colleagues all over the world. And so it's tremendously beneficial in that way, too. Yeah. And, and you, I mean, it's such an asset to our company to have you and your, your global experience, truly. Um, so, so what got you interested in media law? Was there one particular thing or some experience that you had along the way that really sort of mm-hmm. piqued your interest? No, I think one of, um, it was the frustration of being in the former Yugoslavia and wanting to do, I was working at a community center and wanting to do advocacy work. We were spread really thin. It's hard as a nonprofit to get support for, you know, know, financially to do this work. And we were doing a lot of different things. Um, And as I thought about if I focused myself in any one place, how would I do that? It became really clear to me that news and information, that just information for people was so critically important to being able to make decisions. And that was for people who needed to make professional decisions about what to do with their careers, uh, needing to make financial decisions about um, their homes. This was a time where part of the country was exchanging their homes with people in another part of the country as they settled into these two um, entities that were created um, post-state and peace accords in the country. And so with that, I realized that, you know, you know, First Amendment and our freedom of expression and free speech, that that for me was the most fundamental of the fundamental human rights that I was really focused on. And that if I could tackle, if I could you know, help contribute in that regard, that it would have so many other um, you know, second order consequences that people could make better decisions in their daily lives and they can focus on making better decisions in their professional lives. And I just saw that as such a great building block. And so that was why when I came back to the U.S., I initially thought I initially thought that this would be a much more academic area of study. I was pretty naive about media law. I didn't know that it you could actually like 
get paid to, to help people <laughs> do that in a concrete way. And that was when I was um, tremendously lucky to meet Lee Levine. He was the founder of a law firm called Levine Sullivan. And to realize that he was working as an advocate for news organizations across the United States, and this was actually what this law firm focused on, that that became my inspiration. And so that was the law firm. So I initially went to Clifford Chance as I was trying to figure out how to do this in a more international way. Mm -hmm. But when I came back to the United States, I focused on Levine Sullivan, which is actually now um, part of Ballard Spar. It's so fascinating. I think there are many lawyers out there who are not necessarily um, as passionate um, about whatever it is they are, you know, practicing it. And I think everybody who knows you and, and your colleagues know you are a media lawyer at heart. Um, and I, I think, again, it's just one of the things that, that um, you know, make you so unique and, and, and so interesting. The Hearing. You're an attorney with a passion to perform, a drive to be absolutely on your game. With superior resources, serious preparation, and total confidence. Be your best with Thomson Reuters Practical Law. I think probably the most famous case you've worked on, at least from a media perspective since you've been at TR, um, has been the case involving the entrapment and imprisonment of two Reuters journalists in Myanmar. Um, and that was for investigating the Rohingya um, genocide. They were ultimately freed um, in part due to your work. So how did your previous experience working in different countries um, impact your work in, in freeing them? Well, that was definitely the, the imprisonment of all, the prosecution of Wallon and Chasa'u, their imprisonment, they were sentenced to seven years essentially for espionage. Uh, and the 18-month process, so 511 days. Sometimes I'm asked, how long were they in jail for? 511 days. I you know, counted every single one of them. Um, it was certainly uh, one of the most significant uh, matters I've ever worked on or would ever hope to, to work on. Um, the number one thing was you know, trying to wrap our heads around defending uh, a law, you know, a prosecution like this in a foreign country where, you know, the rules are different, the culture is different, the processes, the, you know, the evidentiary rules, the, you know, the criminal procedure rules are all different. So that experience in my life of having traveled other places and learn, learning what I can't take for granted, what I can't assume was incredibly valuable because the first time... First, the first time I got there, I realized it would not be possible for us to work with our local council uh, over, uh, at that point in time, it was more WhatsApp, WhatsApp conversations and other phone conversations, that the way the Burmese people are in general, just face-to-face -face conversations is what was expected, and that was really what was most productive. And so... I immediately spoke to my colleagues and said, this isn't going to be something where we can remotely work together. We will have to figure out a schedule for how we would take turns. Um, so my then manager at the time, Gail Gove, and I know that she's been hosted on this <laughs> podcast before, so you can hear more about the day in Diana, but we, we worked out a schedule. So I would go, you know, essentially for two weeks and we'd have a break and then she would go so that we would be there to work with the local council and to, to be at the hearings, also the opportunity to, to help uh, morally support Wallon and Chasu by being there physically and being able to put our hands on their shoulder as we're sitting behind them, the, the def defendants sit in the front. 
pew, so to speak, and the lawyers sit right behind uh, behind them to be able to support them in that way. It was incredibly valuable. And I think it's, um, you know, one of the things when I look back that was so important was to go there and just with the most open mind, um, not make any assumptions. Because when we did, we messed up. So for example, when Wallon and Chelsea went to jail, we didn't think immediately to ask about, did they have a bed? We just assumed they had a bed. Oh, so one wow. of the early requests was, could we have a mattress? And it was like, of course you can have a mattress. And then all of a sudden it was, what else do you need? And realizing we need to support the families and bringing food to them every day because wow. that's how it works in the prison there. We needed to help support them with other, you know, with figuring out what the rules were so they could have some sort of reading materials, you know, watch some news and things like that. So from the very beginning, we just helped try to break down any assumptions that would stand in the way of us supporting them, defending their case, and then making sure that our lawyers were the best possible advocates for them. Since you mentioned extra lawyers, I, I have to take the opportunity to ask. Um, uh, some people may know that in connection with this case, there was a celebrity lawyer of sorts named Amal Clooney. Um, and so I, I couldn't let this one slide. I have to ask you, what was it like working side by side with, with Amal Clooney? I, Amal is terrific. And I think, you know, if anyone has any questions, she is absolutely 100% the, the superhuman that people think she is. And I just, you know, what impressed me the most is number one, she writes all of her own speeches. So when wow. you see her and, and she is so compelling, whether it's, you know, at the in before the United Nations or in the advocacy work that she did for Wallon and, and Chasa'u, those are her, her own words. So just know that her brain is indeed that big. She yeah. is so smart. And then what we really appreciated on this case is because we were just, we had been at this for so long because we, um, you know, this was our, you know, every day for those 511 days, she brought this dedication um, that when we were when we were feeling low about certain ideas, she would come and just try to come with new ideas. So that energy, that that um, resolve, that we would find something even when it seemed like we were at the end. Um, and this, you know, really, you know, we knew that we would lose the trial. I mean, that wasn't, um, you know, that wasn't something that I thought was feasible. But in the later stages, after each opportunity to seek. Um, amnesty appeared to be denied. It just felt like we we needed someone who could come in with fresh ideas and, and, and you know, just creative thinking. And she brought that as well. And then on top of it all, you know, it's just, you know, she's, when I was walking on the streets with of New York with her and you have so many people asking to take a picture with her and to, and to ask her questions. She's just so graceful. And I realized in one day how exhausting that must be to be the center of attention. Yet she, she is so respectful of all the people around her and, and has just tremendous energy. So she's um, really just superhuman. And I'm so appreciative to have her in the world doing great things and seeing what she's continuing to do for the defense of uh, Philippine-American journalist Maria Ressa and others, it's really, it's really tremendous. So tell me about the moment you learned that they were free. Do you remember where you were and, and how you received the information? Well, so um, I learned it because I was watching a live stream from home. 
uh, and I watched them walk out of the uh, out of the prison grounds and through the gates. It was a lot of tears of joy. I can imagine. There's a photograph right outside my office of Walona Chasu who is there walking out and it's just it it makes me smile every day and it's fun people come to my office in Times Square and they see that photograph and and it's great to see uh, the smiles that that brings on people's faces as they think about that amazing moment. So now you just gave me a reason to go upstairs. Yeah, <laughs> I don't come, think come I've ever 18. seen your office. So yeah. I will have to uh, make a point to do that next time. Um, so how has your experience working in other countries affected how you view the the U.S. legal system and, and particularly how the U.S. litigates? And, and how is litigation in the U.S. different um, from other countries? That's a, that's a really great question because um, – I think coming through U.S. law school, I thought, oh, this just must be the way that everyone does it. And that's not the case at all. It's tremendously different um, around the world. And even in countries with the same type of common law systems um, that we have and approaches, it's still quite different. And so there are a number of things that I've learned uh, from the way litigation happens in other countries that I bring into my work globally. I really try to, to identify best practices. So one you know, is that uh, in many other systems, before you can go to court, a plaintiff or a claimant is obligated to undertake a substantial amount of investigation into the actual facts, the actual damages. In some countries, when you, uh, when you file your complaint, you have to state what the amount in controversy is. And that, um, that matters because at the end of the case, if you haven't actually been awarded a certain percentage of that, say 80% of that demand, uh, that party is responsible for the, the opposing party's attorney's fees. And so it has a considerable weight. So I've seen jurisdictions where the, the court system and the, the rules uh, relating to what, you know, what the complaint must contain really forced the parties to enforce, again, in particular the claimant, to identify what exactly is at issue, what exactly the ask is, and to justify it very early on. So we see early settlement um, or an early understanding of what the case is or isn't. And I think that that's something that we could benefit from the United States yeah, because the bar in filing complaints can, can be low and we have, you know, courts and jurisdictions that don't have many rules or tools uh, to use uh, to, to enforce that desire for investigation before before we really take up the judicial resources that we do. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is, I can only wish for a system like that in the U.S. It would streamline things and just reduce so much of the unnecessary, you know, litigation in, in the U.S. Um, so, so in a similar vein, as a U.S. lawyer who has worked in all these other countries, um, what were some of the most surprising things about judicial systems in, in other countries? Mm -hmm. oh, there's so many. Um, in France, you can go, you can have a trial on appeal. So we had a criminal defamation matter where we ran a whole second trial on appeal. And it just hadn't crossed my mind that that was the way a, a judiciary could work. Um, 
In other countries, there are some very specific laws that we wouldn't expect. Reporting on the judiciary is highly restricted in many countries. So we in the United States take advantage of the fair report privilege. And so when there's an allegation made in court, so long as you uh, report a fair and accurate statement about that, including the lawyer's own summary, standing, say, on you know in the proverbial courthouse steps, that's protected um, under U.S. law, and not so in the vast majority of other countries where actually speaking about uh, uh, legal proceedings that are in progress can result in contempt, can result in a finding of prejudice to the proceedings. Some people joke and say, um, in, in the United States, we sequester the jury. In the rest of the world, they sequester the public. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is significant, just a significant difference in um, the trust that's placed in the system to work and to not um, be, you know, for the proceedings not to be biased by statements made outside the courtroom. So that's tremendously different, a cultural difference. That's almost terrifying to me. You know, I was going to say, oh, oh, it all sounds better in other countries, you know, if if they settle early on and they do the investigation before they file the complaint. But um, no, no, everywhere. Everywhere. What I'd like to do is collect up all the global best practices and, you know, create a hypothetical new system um, with as much of that as I could. That would be amazing. And, And I think that is Again, one of the things that makes you so unique, your, your global perspective on things, it is not something everybody has and, and certainly not something a lot of American lawyers have. So it's so refreshing to hear you talk about it and, and, and hear your perspective on things. I feel I feel really lucky. And what it allows me to do is look around corners, especially on new legal issues. So having been in a position to watch how the GDPR came across Europe and watching how privacy laws are coming across the United States to know and understand what that looks like and what some of the pros and cons are there. Um, in employment law, just the concept of duty of care to our employees is something that's, you know, has been a common phrase in countries like uh, Australia and the UK for a long time. And I think in the United States, we talk about that more and more. And with COVID, we talked about that more and more. So it's it's tremendously helpful to to read and watch um, you know, how legal issues are progressing in other countries, because sooner or later, it'll come here too, maybe, you know, hopefully with lessons of the most efficient way to to regulate or to tackle certain situations, but it's really it's really helpful not to be surprised, um, but to know okay that I saw that coming for for a few years to start wrapping my head around well what what could that look like here or in our in the context of you know of our company or you know our society our community. I mean, it's a true talent to sort of be able to predict the future. And then, you know, something you said before also struck me, which is you just have to learn not to make assumptions. And I think that is very difficult to do, especially as a lawyer. Especially as a lawyer, but it's something I've also learned from our journalists, not just assumptions, but when you ask questions, when you go in an an interview, to ask the most open-ended question possible because the information you get back may not be what you expected and you don't want to craft the question in a way that that you you know would actually foreclose yourself from getting that information and I thought you know as a junior lawyer especially when I was doing you know trying to find witnesses to you know help provide declarations in a case or something like that it was fun to uh, talk to some of my the journalists that I was defending about the skills that they learned in journalism school to think about how to get people to talk to you and to open up and to to help explain to them what the case is about and why they should actually get involved and that 
that open-ended questioning aspect of it and the information gathering is something that you know makes sense in a journalistic perspective. But I think my international work just helped me hone that more because I realized just I realized how little I know. <laughs> I mean, it's so great, you know, and to be humble like that and realize that there's so many other things. So I do want to talk to you a little bit about your kids and your family and, and sort of um, would love to end on a more personal level, because I think the, you know, global aspect of your life also plays a huge part in your personal life. Um, and and what I mean by that is for those of you, for those of us who are fortunate enough to know you um, or, or for anybody who follows you on social media, they know that you are incredibly, incredibly proud to be a part of a um, multicultural family and, and to be raising multicultural children. You mentioned before your husband is from India. What do you love the most about being a part of a multicultural family? What do I love the most? <laughs> well, Indian food is actually really high up on my, <laughs> on my list. Me too. I'm it, um, with that you on that. No, I think, um, I, you know, I, I just have so much respect um, for immigrants, like start there. And like, you know, when I met my husband and he, you know, he came to the United States at the age of 17 and, and he embraced this country and this is his country. He's spent more than half of his life here. And he's, you know, I think brought so much to the country and in the work that he does in academic emergency medicine, but he's, you know, also recognizes all that he's gained from um, moving to the United States. And I think that in a way seeing that, it's the same in reverse. So his family has accepted me. His family is partially in the United States and partially in India. And they've welcomed me um, with open arms and have everything from, you know, teaching me Marathi to, you know, helping explain, you know, all the different uh, pujas for a particular ceremony and Diwali and things like that. And, and I think they, you know, the same open mind that I brought in other circumstances, you know, has, has led to really interesting conversations about, um, you know, the cultural traditions, religious traditions, um, and it's made um, it's it's made my life richer. And so, you know, we've done a lot in our family to make sure that our kids really truly feel um, like they're just as Indian as they are American. Um, we're getting ready to take them to India for the second time. So, wow. One last question. Does being part of this, you know, multicultural family and universe affect how you do business at all? Well, I definitely. Um, I just think because of my world, I'm I'm always interacting with people from other places. Also, I think when someone sees me, and if they just see a white woman who perhaps has a bit of a Midwestern accent when I say things like roof and bagel, um, you know, they might assume I'm one thing and not realize that, you know, that I'm married to someone who grew up in another country or that I speak other languages they might not know. And I think um, one of the very first things is if I sit down with someone on a video conference, I don't make any assumptions about their background. They could be trilingual. They could be, they could only speak English. They could, you know, have, um, have, moved across countries or grown up in one place. I think, you know, in that, um, in that I'm, I really do, I think the fundamental idea is to be open to who people are. Um, and then the same thing goes with dispute resolution and processes like that. So different people 
value different things. And so as we start, you know, realizing that we might have a dispute in a way in, in my world, sometimes it's really taking that huge step back and saying, what's important to this person? Uh, what is what is valuable to them? Because if I made an assumption about that and thought they only cared about one thing, I might be completely missing the mark of a really easy resolution, you know, something that, that we can offer that's consistent with our business values and who we are as a company that that might be exactly what they're after. But if I don't ask that right question, or if I ask it in too closed of a way, I might not get there. I might get there way, way, way after. And so I do think in all my interactions, um, internally, externally, um, I'm incredibly mindful of asking those open questions and truly listening to people and taking a step back and questioning my assumptions so that we get to you know, the you know, a, a mutually satisfactory resolution as quickly as possible. So I'm struck by, by the you know, continuing theme of asking open-ended questions. It is such a skill and particularly you know, as a litigator, sometimes that's not the best approach, right? So we're, we're taught in depositions, ask yes or no questions, you know, or, or, you know, when prepping a witness, don't answer, you know, anything except yes or no. So it, it is really um, interesting to hear the other side of the coin and, and to recognize how important it, it really truly is to not assume things and, and to, you know, learn about people and, and gather information by asking, you know, these open-ended questions. Yeah, there's, there's definitely a time and a place for it, de- <laughs> for not <sure>. in depositions. <laughs> Correct. Well, thank you so much, Catherine. It was so great um, speaking with you today. And, and thank you so much for, for your honesty and, and just your, your global perspective. It's, it's amazing to have you. So thank you. You as well, Lauren. Thank you. The Hearing. Thanks so much for listening in today. If you have any suggestions for future guests or topics, or you just want to say hello, we would love to hear from you. Our email is thehearingattr.com. That's thehearingattr.com. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.